Welcome to The Art Career, a space breaking barriers by letting you sit in on candid, straightforward conversations with leading art professionals in visual arts, writing, music, theater, and film. I'm your host, Emily McElreath, and I invite you to join me for inspirational conversations with icons of our generation. We dive deep into topics like self-development, career trajectories, mental health, social justice, and the artists that have changed our lives. With each episode, our mission is to empower you, expanding your journey through the arts. Join us for new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. The Art Career is thrilled to announce its partnership with Glimpse. Glimpse Guides are a collection of luxury guidebooks with an outstanding social mission we are proud to support. Featuring the best of hotels, restaurants, activities, and itineraries for each featured city, Glimpse Guides also include recommendations and travel tips by a curated selection of tastemakers. The most exciting part of Glimpse Guides is 100% of their profits go to Give a Glimpse, which provides funding for educational travel scholarships for underserved students. What is better than that? Glimpse believe that travel is the most important form of education, and it is their mission to send as many deserving students abroad as possible. Glimpse also offers luxury trip design services with VIP perks like early check-in, room upgrades, restaurant and spa credits, welcome gifts, and more. Glimpse has quickly become our one and only travel planner. Go check them out at glimpseguides.com and tell founder Jordan Rhodes that the Art Career Podcast sent you. Welcome to our season finale true crime miniseries at The Art Career. We are joined again, we're so lucky to be joined by Dr. Noah Charney, who is just so good at telling stories. I've gotten so much positive feedback from our first episode. And today, Noah is going to be talking about the famous theft of the Mona Lisa and how Picasso was in fact involved in this. So take it away, Noah. Emily, thanks so much for having me back to this wonderful podcast. And I love teaching history and teaching anything through storytelling. I think it's the most engaging way to approach learning any new information. And especially when we're dealing with art, For me, art is something that we can look at as visual puzzles and try to interpret. But I also like it when we think of the art object as something that can be at the heart of a true crime. And so this mini series is great because we're talking about great works of art that have been involved in crimes. And in this case, there's actually two separate thefts that I wanted to talk about. They're linked, but one absolutely surprises everybody. You wouldn't believe people who have these reactions that they never heard of one aspect of the great Pablo Picasso's career that is, you know, so sexy and cinematic. And even if you read Picasso biographies, this often gets little more than a footnote. But in fact, it's um, 
thoroughly documented. Picasso later admitted to it in a Life magazine interview. And it's a great story. And it's the reason why he was arrested on suspicion of having stolen the Mona Lisa. So before we get into the Mona Lisa theft, we need to go back in time just a little bit because the incident we're gonna talk about first is referred to as the Affaire des Statuettes, which means the Statuettes Affair. And it involves a pair of statue heads that were stolen from the Louvre, either with Picasso's proactive engagement in the theft or on commission from Picasso. And when I'm asked about the history of art crime and art theft, the most frequently asked question I get certainly is, do Dr. No figures exist? Are there criminal collectors who will proactively buy works of art that they know are stolen? Or will they actually commission a thief to steal a work of art from an extant collection that they'd like to have? And the answer is almost no one in the known history of art theft matches that description. There are tens of thousands of art thefts reported every year worldwide, many more that go unreported. And out of all of those, there are probably a couple dozen that match that romantic cinematic description, but this is one of them. So <laughs> this is the fun exception to the rule. So what was Picasso up to? Well, in 1904, Picasso moved from Spain to Paris um, and he wanted to make a career as an artist. He was painting in a style that really no one had ever seen before. He had a few colleagues like Georges Braque, the co-inventor of Cubism, who were interested in the same style he was, but he looked to break down realistic images into what looked like geometric components. I always imagine if you saw someone in a mirror and then smashed the mirror, but their image was preserved on the glass and rearranged, that would look like a Picasso work. But during this period, when he first moved to Paris, he was in what was called the Blue Period, and the most famous work is probably the old guitar player. Um, if people are familiar with that, this is before he ventured into Cubism. And he was trying to make a career of it in Paris, which was the center of the art world. He was living in a very ramshackle, it's kind of like a frat house, a ramshackle series of buildings called Bateau Lavoir that was in um, uh, near Saint-Denis uh, Church in Paris, and it was a warn of these like rundown squat situation building. Um, and he was living there and it's where a lot of artist friends would hang out, including his best friend, the Polish poet, Guillaume Apollinaire, who was also an art critic. And so he was living and painting here. And during this time, he saw an exhibit at the Louvre Museum. Now the Louvre Museum used to be the royal residence of the French royal family in Paris. Um, but it had been converted after the French Revolution into a museum first called Musée Napoléon, the Museum of Napoleon, um, and then later the Musée du Louvre. And it was core collection that began with the French Royal Art Collection, which had been nationalized after the revolution. And then Napoleon has basically looted his way across Europe, um, guided by Denon, the surname of the first director of the Louvre Museum, who had a really good eye and would say, you know, if you happen to be invading Egypt, Napoleon, can you grab me the, the following laundry list of things? Um, and many objects in the Louvre still to this day were, were taken under questionable circumstances during the Napoleonic era. And we era. briefly spoke well, about this with the Ghent altarpiece as well, and good old Napoleon. That's right. There's a lot of these stories will cross over, especially with World War II looting and Napoleonic looting, we're talking about millions of cultural heritage objects. Um, so some of the objects that were in the Louvre collection included what was thought to be ancient Phoenician statue heads. 
They were found in the Iberian Peninsula. And as an Iberian, a Spaniard, Picasso felt a real connection to them. And we have pictures of them today. Um, You can see what they look like. They're still now back at the Louvre Museum. And they look quite like a sculpture that might be a Picasso painting. The proportions of the faces are a little bit off. Um, One of the sculptures in profile really does look quite like a Picasso work. And in fact, he remarked in his diary how much he thought these were impressive statues. Now we fast forward a little bit. um, And Apollinaire, Picasso's best friend, had a very unusual, charismatic, weird, kleptomaniacal secretary named Honoré-Joseph-Géry-Pierret. He was a Belgian who basically worked as a personal assistant for Apollinaire, but was stealing regularly, probably compulsively, from the Louvre Museum. In fact, once he asked his girlfriend, Honey, I'm going to the Louvre, do you want anything? And the girlfriend thought he meant to the Louvre shopping arcade next to the museum, but he actually meant to the museum itself. And during this time... Picasso got the idea that he would quite like these Iberian statue heads. And Géry Pierre stole them. But according to Géry Pierre's official explanation of the theft, he did it by himself. He carried both statue heads underneath a trench coat. And he was so confident that when they were under the trench coat, he stopped and asked a Louvre security officer for the directions to the nearest exit. So this guy like had major balls, um, but that's his version of the story. And then later on, he says that he sold them to Picasso, that Picasso didn't know where they were from, and they became part of his collection. Bullshit. Sounds a little fishy, but when we... <laughs> exactly. And we all know what else Picasso was up to. So how many people are really going to believe that Picasso didn't know about this too? Exactly. Especially when these are the exact statue heads that he really admired. was also funny because his girlfriend at the time, Fernand Olivier, remarked that all of Picasso's art collection was out on display in their apartment, except for these two statue heads, which he kept hidden away in the sock drawer or whatever it is. So so this crime took place um, probably in 1907, possibly the end of 1906. And one of the other things that's interesting that some later scholars discovered, um, and this was first published in a book I edited in 2009 called Art and Crime, and so that's where most of the information on this comes from, is that those statue heads in particular had been on display back uh, a few years prior for a special exhibit. And when Picasso acquired them, they were in storage. That means that somebody had to go down into storage and go hunting for exactly these statue heads. They weren't just out on display. Even if they were, the Louvre did not have very good security. Statues were just sitting on tables or plinths. Uh, Alarms had been invented, but they were irregularly used. They um, would go off incorrectly a lot, and they were not ubiquitous the way they are today. And there were about 200 security guards who patrolled during the day, but the Louvre had over 400 rooms, and many fewer at night. So based on what we can piece together, what probably happened is this. The statue heads were too large and unwieldy for one person to carry, much less hide both of them under their trench coat. So Géry Pierre certainly had one and maybe two accomplices, and they must have been Picasso and or Apollinaire. They must have certainly wanted these particular statue heads because they were the ones that had been spotted. Those were the ones that were taken. Those were the ones that were hidden in um, Picasso's you know, sock drawer back home. And then when we fast forward a bit, when the Mona Lisa was stolen in August of 1911, 
Police arrived at Picasso's door, and I'll explain why in a moment. After questioning him and deciding he was not responsible for the Mona Lisa theft, he went back home, and Apollinaire and he put the statue heads in a suitcase, and in the middle of the night took the statues out and planned to throw it into the Seine River to hide the evidence that while they were innocent of the Mona Lisa theft, they were guilty of having stolen something else from the Louvre. But they couldn't bring themselves to do it. The statues were too beautiful. And the next morning, Fernand Olivier writes in her diary that they brought the statue heads back. And eventually, someone who looked suspiciously like Apollinaire wearing like a fake Groucho Marx mustache, not a master of disguise, returned the statue heads to the very magazine that Apollinaire wrote art criticism for under a false name and through the magazine returned them to the Louvre collection. If you have a podcast or you're thinking about starting one, I have the perfect show recommendation for you. It's called Podcast Bestie, and it's a best friend to indie podcasters trying to grow and monetize their show. Podcast Bestie started as a popular newsletter on Substack, and now it's also a podcast. It's hosted by the awesome Courtney Kosak, your BFF in making your podcast the best it can be. I have been interviewed by Courtney and also take all of the advice Courtney puts out there and implement it into my podcast. Tune in for episodes with some of the biggest names in podcasting. New episodes every other Monday for the rest of the summer. Subscribe to Podcast Bestie and Substack to uplevel your podcast game now. So let's just sidestep a bit. And I mentioned in passing the Mona Lisa theft, but now we should jump into that to see where in that story Picasso's arrest takes place. So Vincenzo Perugia breathed in heavily the scent of his sweat as he waited, barely willing to exhale, in the tight, dark closet behind the Salle des Sept Martres Gallery in the Louvre. And he was listening to the footfalls of the guards as they gradually grew louder in a painfully slow crescendo. And for an exquisite moment, they seemed to stop right outside the door against which his ear had been propped. But then they continued into the distance, echoing along the length of the corridor and into the night museum. Perugia knew that the Louvre had over 400 rooms, but only 200 guards, with a great many fewer who patrolled the corridors at night. And he knew the precise manner in which his quarry hung in the darkness ahead of him. He knew what he would say if he were caught. He was just an employee of a company that had been subcontracted by the Louvre. But nothing would help him if he were found with a painting in hand. He had been working at the Louvre Museum for over two four-month periods as a handyman, most recently involved in constructing wooden and glass cases to protect some of the Louvre's most famous paintings from the threat of anarchists, who the directorship feared might target a masterpiece for vandalism as a means of political protest after a woman had slashed an Angra painting in 1907. So he was one of five workers in charge of cutting and cleaning glass to build these cases in October of 1910. He was an amateur painter born in Dumenza near Milano in Italy, but he had been living in Paris for many years, a member of a community of expatriate Italians in the City of Light. It was the heart of the art world, and as an aspiring artist of whatever limited talent he may have had, it was the place to be. 
From a pragmatic standpoint, it was a good deal easier to find work in France than it was in Italy during a period that saw the mass exodus of unemployed lower-class Italians leaving for fairer shores. Most went to the United States, but for an art lover, Paris was the better destination. When Perugia was as certain as he could be that the guards had moved on, he carefully twisted the handle of the wooden closet door and peeked out. When he saw no one, he slipped out of the stairwell and into the gallery, gently shutting the door behind him. So it was around 7.15 on a Monday morning, a day when the Louvre was closed, and a gentle light would have been filtering through the windows of the galleries. But he navigated as much by memory as by sight, moving from the closet to the Grand Galerie, and then the Salon Carré, which displayed the gems of the Louvre collection, works by Raphael Titian, Van Eyck, Rembrandt Velasquez, and many more. And it didn't take him long to reach his target, the most famous painting in the world, La Joconde, La Joconda, or Mona Lisa. So he removed the painting from the wall and thought to himself, I'm almost certain, today I will right a great wrong. I will return to Italy what was stolen from her. Though I cannot reverse all of Napoleon's sins, I can steal back one of the great masterpieces that he ripped from my homeland. La Joconda will be returned. So what was he talking about here? This is my imagining what he was thinking, but it's a pretty fair guess. Vincenzo Perugia found himself with an opportunity for a crime. He was not a career criminal as far as anyone knows, but he was working for a company that was working for the Louvre. So he had a worker's uniform. He had access to the museum. And he was under the misapprehension that the Mona Lisa had been looted by Napoleon. That was a pretty good guess, because as we've talked about, right. Napoleon stole hundreds of objects that were in the Louvre collection, but not this one. This one had been bought from the inheritors of the estate of Leonardo after his death by King Francis I, and it was officially part of the royal collection, but he didn't know that. There's some suggestion that he may have thought about trying to sell the painting once he had stolen it, possibly to a wealthy American collector, but he would have quickly realized he didn't have the contact to be able to do this. And it was a lost cause. So this idea of repatriating it in hopes of a reward, certainly, um, was probably the primary motivation. So he removes the Mona Lisa, which is in this heavy gilded oak frame from the wall. And he removes it in such a way that should have given police a clue because he didn't clonk around and make a lot of noise, but it was hung in a way that required understanding how it was hung to remove it seamlessly. And he ran for custodian's staircase that would have been used just by staff. And when he's there, he removes the panel on which the Mona Lisa is painted from its ornate frame. And he wraps it in a white sheet and he hustles down the staircase and he's expecting to exit at the bottom of the staircase through the court of the Sphinx and out into the early morning Paris. But when he reaches the bottom of the stairs, the door there is locked. Now, he thought maybe it would be locked from the inside just in case he brought some tools with him. It seems like he may have tried to pry the door open but realized it would make too much noise. Instead, he tried to unscrew the doorknob thinking that would undo the lock. And he unscrewed the doorknob, put it in his pocket, but the door was still locked. And then he heard footsteps coming towards him. Footsteps turned out that it was uh, a night janitor doing his rounds, and apparently it wasn't too suspicious to find someone in a Louvre worker's uniform stuck and locked in at night, even if he had a Mona Lisa-shaped package wrapped in white under his arm. And we don't know what the night janitor's reaction was, but he unlocked the door, 
even though it didn't have a doorknob on it, and let him out. And off he went into early morning Paris, and we have a record of someone who was setting up shop at that Louvre shopping arcade across the street, who told the police he thought it was weird that someone in a Louvre worker's uniform with a package under his arm had thrown a doorknob over his shoulder as he had walked off into Paris. Now, the police were completely stumped, and this is one of the great failures in the history of criminal investigation. The lead investigator was a very short, very clever and nasty guy named Louis Lepine, who was important to the history of criminal investigation because he was someone who was an early, an early proponent of forensic testing, things like bullets, which are normal now, but there was, of course, a time when that wasn't done or it was very unusual to do so, and also of using fingerprints as a way to identify people and photographs of suspects. Um, we have from when he was eventually arrested after turning himself in, if we fast forward a bit, the fingerprints and mug shots of Vincenzo Perugia, but this is not thanks to the Paris police. The Louvre director resigned in disgrace. The Paris police in interviewed Perugia along with all of the Louvre staff twice and never seemed to think he was a suspect. This may have had to do with a kind of looking down on Italian immigrants that was an unfortunate aspect of Parisian life. There was a xenophobia at this time in Paris. This is around the period of the Dreyfus Affair. And uh, Italians who had immigrated for work were kind of looked down upon uh, in general. This may have been why they didn't take him seriously. But what had he done with a painting? He kept it. He kept it for two years wow. in a false bottom shipping container under his bed in his little apartment. And he would later say he was sort of hypnotized by it. Um, you might call it reverse Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome is when a hostage falls in love with the person holding them hostage. Well, this is a reverse here. The hostage taker fell in love with the object that he art napped. And he didn't know what to do with it. He, he didn't try to sell it as far as we know. And it, we have to go forward to 1913 before Alfredo Geri, an Italian art dealer in Florence gets a telegram. And the telegram says, I have the Mona Lisa. I want to bring it back to you. And can you help me return it to the Uffizi Museum? Now, during this time, the Mona Lisa became the world's most famous painting. There's a, this is a side story. I wrote a, a TED Ed video about why the Mona Lisa is the most famous work of art in the world that tells the story in more detail. But basically there was a cult of fascination with Leonardo da Vinci. This was, probably his most famous work. To be honest, there isn't much more to it art historically than meets the eye. There's all these conspiracy theories around it because I think people want to project more of a story on what is a very beautiful high Renaissance portrait of a woman, but it doesn't have these like secret codes or Leonardo in drag or a crocodile hidden in her eyeball and these crazy conspiracy theories that you might hear about. But it's a very wonderful painting. There's plenty going on that we don't need crocodiles hiding in eyeballs and hieroglyphics and whatnot. So it, it was famous because it was by Leonardo. It was a beautiful painting. It was in the Louvre collection. And then it became the most famous work of art on the planet when it was stolen. And it made international newspaper headlines. It was the main news source until really the Titanic sunk and then that stole the headlines. As someone extremely passionate about mental health, seeing a therapist is essential to my quality of life. 
we'd like to take this moment to announce how thrilled we are to partner with the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp. If you think you might be feeling anxious, depressed, or even just overwhelmed, being alone with your thoughts can be an isolating feeling. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. It's that easy. Join the 2 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. And just for the Art Career podcast listeners, we will offer 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash T-A-C. That's better, B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P dot com slash T-A-C. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring the Art Career Podcast. So during this period, we got to catch up with Picasso and our buddy Apollinaire, because what were they up to? Well, their involvement, or their suspicion rather, was due to the fact that Géry Pierret, remember the Belgian kleptomaniac guy, he had since argued with Apollinaire, stopped working for him, and was living abroad. He actually became a cowboy in San Diego, believe it or not. You can't make this stuff up. Before San Diego was like a city when it was still cowboy territory. He wrote to one of the many magazines in Paris that was covering the investigation proactively, usually with daily updates. And he wrote this very funny, grumpy letter saying it was outrageous that someone had stolen the Mona Lisa. He had been thinking about doing it. Now he couldn't. And now the security was going to be much better at the Louvre. And this just wasn't how you play cricket because this is totally unfair. He just funked up his groove of stealing from the Louvre. And because he was a known I'm going to say confidant of Picasso and Apollinaire, the police went and knocked on their door and arrested both of them. Both of them were brought in for questioning separately. They were completely terrified to the point where Picasso denied having ever seen Apollinaire before. And this was ridiculous because they were best friends. They were photographed at like Closerie de Lila, drinking together. They were men about town. Everybody knew that they were best friends. And both were terrified of being deported. Uh, Picasso didn't want to go back to Spain. Apollinaire didn't want to go to Poland. So that was what their main concern was. But they were innocent of the Mona Lisa theft. They had alibis, but they had stolen something else. So the Parisian newspapers were putting a lot of pressure on the police. They were also... The more liberal ones were saying this is a a demonstration of how the conservative government just can't handle anything if they can't protect the most famous painting in in the most famous collection in our country. What hope do we have? Unfortunately, it was true. They didn't get anywhere. And it was down to Vincenzo Perugia trying to repatriate the Mona Lisa. So Alfredo Geri had heard about the news and he thought this was ridiculous. It must be some sort of a, a prank. But he said, okay, just in case I'll meet this guy anyway. And he brought with him Poggi, who was the director of the Uffizi Museum at that time. And the two of them went to the hotel room of Vincenzo Perugia. The hotel is now called Hotel La Gioconda, the Mona Lisa Hotel. It's in Florence near the Baptistry. Um, and they met him and they were surprised that he was a very short guy with a nice mustache, an enthusiastic uh, mandolin player. 
<laughs> and they thought, yeah, yeah, you, you got the Mona Lisa when, when pigs have wings. And then they saw he pulled out from under his bed this false bottom shipping container, pops it open, and there is the Mona Lisa. And they tried to hold back their surprise. They said, can we take it to the Uffizi to make sure it's unharmed and it's the original? He said, no problem. And he was hoping to get a reward for having safely brought it back. And he was very surprised that the next knock on the door was the Italian police arresting him. He somehow thought he would be met as a national hero. And to some extent he was. He was put on trial. The reason we know about this in great detail is uh, trial records have a habit of surviving much better than other types of documentation. And he told his story and the way he describes it, he was a patriotic Italian trying to correct the wrong of Napoleonic looting. He was generally believed and uh, people were sympathetic to him. And he was given a sentence that was actually less time than he had already spent in jail waiting for trial. Wow. So he was actually immediately let out. And the Mona Lisa went on display in the Uffizi for a few weeks, then back in Paris. And that's the short version of the theft of the Mona Lisa plus the Affair des Statuettes, which is how Picasso was indirectly linked to it. I did not know the Picasso side of things, that he was actually arrested for stealing the Mona Lisa. And I can't believe that when the arrest finally happened, that he only spent how long in jail? I actually have the exact number of days. I'm, I'm not remembering but, at the moment. I'll, I'll look it up for when, you, but it's, it's not very long. When <laughs> he presented this, did he say, I stole this two years ago and this has been up in my home? He, When he was arrested um, on trial, he said that he stole it for patriotic reasons. Okay. Um, and that he had always intended to bring it back to Italy, but it had cast this spell on him. It had sort of hypnotized him. You imagine someone trying to give that excuse now? I know, but at the time it sounded quite romantic and people were totally wow. into it. That, like, He said that he stopped being social. He thought it was really bad for his health because he would just come home from work, whip out the Mona Lisa and just stare at it. Until he went to, to bed, fell asleep and go do the same thing the next day. And for his own survival, he decided he had to really get rid of it. So he, he took a lot of risk. He smuggled it abroad in this false bottom shipping container. And I just looked it up. It was 380 days in prison. So it's not a short amount of time, but yes, it wound it up is. being. Well, OK, fair enough. For, <laughs> for stealing the Mona Lisa, that's, yeah. that's uh, quite the light sentence. And he has this place in folklore. Because one of the things that happened during this period is crazy stories start to pop up, not just about why the Mona Lisa was so intriguing, somebody, you know, looking for something more than what was actually there from a pure art historical scientific perspective, but also crazy theories behind the theft. I'll just tell you one very brief one, because it's interesting, because we live in an era where there's a concern about fake news. And this is a famous early example of fake news. In 1932, the Saturday Evening Post, which is, you know, it's before our time, but it was this um, weekly magazine that Norman Rockwell famously made the covers for. They published an article by a guy named Carl Decker that claimed that Decker had been in Morocco and had run into an Argentine count named Valfierno, who told him that he had commissioned Perugia to steal the Mona Lisa. And his plan was to make 10 identical copies of the Mona Lisa, and each one he was gonna to sell to a stupid American millionaire 
who would think he had the stolen original, but he wouldn't be able to show it to anyone because it was stolen. And he was going to profit from it 10 times while keeping the original himself. And this was published as a factual piece of journalism. And because of that, it infected popular culture. And a lot of people think that it's true. A lot of people think that stealing famous art in order to make copies to sell to millionaires is a thing. And it really isn't as far as we know historically. Um, and that was found out to be entirely invented by Carl Decker, who is a serial inventor of fake news stories. So he was kind of a, an early example of a fake journalist. But because of the prevalence and the early period when that circulated, a lot of people tell the story as fact. So we, we got lots of these crazy like sidelines around Mona Lisa that have inflated its myth and it's part of why it's so famous. And the sidelines of what you briefly discussed before, the symbolism and the hidden puzzles and everything that's gone along with the Mona Lisa that, you know, we all bought into at some point. It's really intriguing. You know, people love hidden secret puzzle. Those are key words that people just light up. But when do you hear. know for a fact that none of those things are true? Well, I have I have a book coming out next year called The Thefts of the Mona Lisa that goes into all this stuff in, in detail, um, including the conspiracy theories. And the kooky conspiracy theories I know for a fact are, are not true. But there are some fun surprises. There is, are, I was about to say is or are, because there is either one or are two un underpaintings to the Mona Lisa that look quite different. Basically, the attributes of the woman portrayed, Lisa Gerardini, look quite different in the underpaintings than in the finished original. And uh, there's a scientist called Pascal Cote, who is um, a Frenchman who has made some really impressive forays into exploring the Mona Lisa beneath the surface using special light spectra. Um, there was a BBC documentary about this called The Secrets of Mona Lisa. Um, and there's a, the, the big authority is Martin Kemp, the Oxford scholar. Um, and he talks about it in his recent book. Um, and she looks quite different and the background looks quite different in one of the underpaintings. And so what he did was use this light spectra to look beneath the surface and look at what the original painting might have looked like. And then also a projection of what Mona Lisa looked like when it was first painted before things like her eyebrows and a veil that once covered her face deteriorated through exposure uh, to light. So there are like Mona Lisa secrets, but they don't have anything to do with crocodiles or hieroglyphics or Leonardo and drag. Oh, this is just all so fascinating. And I can't tell you how much I've learned from speaking with you. And we look forward to continuing this relationship with you because you you really are, you know, the top specialist in art crime. And it's an honor and this has been so fun. And I can't thank you enough, Noah. It's my pleasure. Yeah, I'd love to come back anytime. This is a great podcast. It's not only interesting, but I think it really helps people looking for, for careers in the arts. So keep up the good work. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Art Career. If you get value from this podcast, please consider helping me make more of these episodes by becoming an Art Career Premium Member at 
theartcareer.supercast.com. That's theartcareer.supercast.com. S-U-P-E-R-C-A-S-T dot com. And please don't forget to rate and review. Every rating counts. Thanks so much.